from rats to unicorns. This show is all about the people behind the science of biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that, that helps patients with diseases. Life-saving. We're excited to talk to Jennifer Freed today. Jennifer is the CEO and co-founder of Explorer Surgical. She's also a general partner at the Fund Midwest and also a venture partner and a lead investor for Portfolio's Femtech Fund. Welcome, Jennifer. Thanks for having me, John. So great to see you. I was hoping that maybe you could just give a little background on yourself, weave in kind of your journey to present day, and um, we can kind of set the stage for what I hope will be an exciting conversation and talk a lot about you know, your pathway to where you are. And then, you know, with the overall purpose here in these podcasts to demystify a little bit of what it takes to go from start to the market in the tough field of med tech and devices and, and biopharmaceuticals. So if you wouldn't mind just giving us a little background. Sure. Um, well, I started my career as a consultant at Bain, um, working in Chicago out of college, and I was there for three years. And for me, it was really great foundational training, but it also just reminded me where my passions are, um, which is really in healthcare and in early stage, more entrepreneurial environments. And so after a couple of years at Bain, I decided to go back and get my MBA at University of Chicago and really dive into the world of healthcare entrepreneurship and investing. And my initial goal going to business school was to get a job uh, at a healthcare venture capital fund, which I ended up doing and absolutely loved. And my journey into entrepreneurship was probably a little bit more accidental. When I first started Booth, I met a surgeon named Alex Langerman through a program at Polsky that you know very, very well. Absolutely, I don't know yes. how all the listeners know that, <laughs> but we can tell that story too. And became really fascinated by his research and the way that he was thinking about improving the operating room. So while I was at school, I spent a couple years, you know, working with him to really develop the concept, develop early prototypes, work with him from a research standpoint, but start to really say, could we build a technology and build a company out of it? And that's where everything all started. Mm -hmm. And when I graduated school, I actually went full-time to go work at the Healthcare Venture Capital Fund, and a year later decided, okay, you know, the right thing for me is really to be focusing on the startup and building a company, which is what I've been doing for the last five years. And that's a big jump. So what made, what gave you the confidence to say, that's what I'm going to do? You, you switched out of what maybe would have been a more predictable pathway into one that was more ambiguous. Talk about like, what was the switch that flipped that uh, caused you to move that way? It definitely wasn't overnight. And I think, you know, I was maybe the last person to come to the realization. So I remember graduating business school and we had really, really great traction um, for what was the foundations of our company. We came in second place, the new venture challenge. We had gotten this really great SBIR grant from the National Science Foundation. But, you know, I had really committed myself to saying, oh, no, I, I want to be an investor and I want to work in finance. And this is why I left my job at Bain to go back to graduate school. And it wasn't until I realized that the business would never work if I didn't take the plunge. So we were able to get started by getting 
research grants and funding from the University of Chicago and the National Science Foundation, the research funding can generally only take you so far. So there's a certain point where you have to build a business, you have to commercialize. And because healthcare tends to have pretty long sales cycles, you know, you need money right. <laughs> to get the business started. Cash is king. And so what I really realized when we finished up, you know, the SBIR phase one and phase one B and had gone through that money and had gotten great results, I felt really confident in the market we were going after and felt that we had a product that was something that could really win in the marketplace and make a big difference. But it was never going to actually get off the ground unless we went out and raised outside funding. And VCs don't really want to invest in a part-time team. You got to be that's all That's not in. very attractive yeah. to them. Mm-hmm. And that's when, you know, I just said, I, I, I have to do this. I don't think I cannot do this. Um, and it was clear that, you know, that was the time. And I did it with the full support of, you know, the partners, the venture funds that I worked at, which I think was really critical, where... I think otherwise I would have felt just too much guilt and dedication and loyalty um, to the group that had brought me in. And they were really encouraging and said, you know, spread your wings, go fly, you know, go build the business and come back later if you want. Yeah. So you burn the boats and you set out on your journey. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, it's pretty cool. And one of the things I'm inspired about with your journey as well is, you know, you've come at it from the business background. So you're inspired, obviously, by the science and the healthcare and it seems um not putting words in your mouth but probably you know your end game is to help help the patients very much but you know talk a little bit about that you know having a business background and then having to work with Alex Langerman mm-hmm. um a great great person really good collaborator and but a scientist by training a little different yeah. language what what was that like kind of just getting into that because a, a lot of times people will ask me cuz I have a similar background business background mm-hmm. and I really, you know, wanted to be at the nexus of the science and the business, but I often get a lot of questions from folks wondering, what well, how do you get into that yeah. uh, biotech or medtech pathway if you don't have a background in in science? Can you talk a little bit about that, that experience for you? Yeah, I mean, I think interdisciplinary teams, I think, are the best types of teams because you're able to approach problems and approach markets from different viewpoints. And I think as long as you're coming at it from a place of mutual respect and learning, you can go really far. And, you know, for us, Alex and I had the really nice combination of, you know, the clinical medical background. um, And then I was bringing more of a business finance background. But at the end of the day, we're building a software company. And so neither of us were software engineers. Mm -hmm. And so our very first hire was going out and finding a CTO and a computer scientist that was going to be able to work with us to really build out the product. So I think those gaps never stop. And I think the best leaders are ones that are able to say, okay, here's what I know and here's what I'm really confident in. And I want to find the best and brightest and smartest people in the areas that I don't have expertise in and bring them into my team so we can work together. You've built a great team. And I want to talk a little bit about, you know, kind of getting to present day and some of the, what the future holds and the scaling, Mm -hmm. uh, the challenges and opportunities that go with building that team. But focusing on those early days, what was your experience before you could get that team, <laughs> yeah. before you had the ability to kind of pay people. Yeah, people what do would... require generally getting paid right, to exactly. come work with you. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, a key ingredient uh, for that for that recruiting process. But what was it like getting out on the road and raising your first dollars on the outside? What were some of the elements that you had to work with around your story that ultimately got some people on the outside that wanted to back you? Yeah, it was a lot harder than I thought. So, 
you know, having been on the other side only for a couple years, but having been an investor, you know, I felt, okay, I I know how to write a pitch deck. I know how to put together a financial model. I know all the questions people are going to ask me. And I had a ton of relationships. That being said, I was a first-time founder in my 20s, you know, building a software company that was selling into healthcare. And there are a lot of challenges that come with that. And so I think what helped us raise that round you know, was one, coming to that recognition of your very first set of backers, I personally think fall into two categories. You know, one are people that would back you no matter what you're doing, and they believe in you. And I said, if I've created, you know, a new type of glue, you know, would you back me? And those people would say yes, because they believe in me. And the other type of backers are ones that really understand your problem and your market. And so for us, a lot of our early backers fell into those two categories. You know, the first being a lot of people that I met through Booth that saw me go through New Venture Challenge, that had gotten to know me, that believed in me and my ability to get the company off the ground. And the other were predominantly surgeons that said, I've experienced all of these pain points and I'm frustrated by it. And I think your solution would help me practice medicine better. Yeah, great. Yeah. So you had the market there. Um, and that's you know a, an interesting point too. Just as you're getting started thinking about uh, that SBIR, the purpose of the translation, mm-hmm. going from kind of that concept to, to building the first prototype and then getting into the market. Wait, what's an SBIR grant? So an SBIR grant stands for Small Business Innovation Research Grant. It is a way in which the federal government supports cutting-edge but risky technologies that are just coming out. SBIR grants award companies capital that they can use to de-risk their technologies and help find commercial solutions. You use the term de-risking. What's that mean? So de-risking means for an early-stage company that's trying to develop a new technology, there are certain risks or unknowns associated with the technology. In order to help investors feel comfortable with that new technology, it's always best to have new data to offer the investors confidence that your technology will work. And those are what we call de-risking studies. Why would a startup use an SBIR grant? So every single time a company raises capital from an angel investor or a venture capitalist, they need to give up something for that. So usually the people investing in the company will receive an equity stake or what we call a portion of ownership in the company. SBIR grants are non-dilutive. And what that means is these types of non-dilutive capital, like a research grant or an SBIR grant or prize money, they can be used to fund advances in the technology without having to give up equity. Getting into the market. Oftentimes, I had seen a lot of those innovators were kind of focused more around the idea and maybe less around the market. They weren't speaking to the market. That's one thing I noticed early on with Explorer Surgical was that from the get-go, you were very tied into who your end user might be. Maybe just talk a little bit about how important that is um, as you're starting to kind of develop some momentum and make it more real than that initial concept. It's still so important. I mean, I think customer discovery is, it's a constant. It's not something that you do once or that you even do once a year. You always have to listen to your customers. Even now, you know, where we are the most valuable 
you know, tidbits of information I get are when I'm with our customers, when I'm in the OR, when I'm in the cath lab and hearing feedback about our product or just about their pain points and what they need. But, you know, for us, we did a lot of customer discovery very early. And for any of the listeners, you know, John has known the company since the very, very beginning. Mm -hmm. So, you know, from our very first going through the I-Corp program, you know, we got a $2,500 grant to basically go to a conference and ask a whole series of questions. And we used that to discover pain points. And then from there, we started to, you know, build out a very early prototype of our products that was funded by the Department of Surgery. And then we said, okay, we have an understanding of what, you know, all of the end users' pain points are. And in healthcare, it's never just one stakeholder. That's what's so complex about this industry is, you know, you have your patients, you have your providers, you have your payers, you know, you have manufacturers, you have all of these different stakeholders. And in order for any new product to get adopted, you have to create value for every single person that's involved, which is why I think healthcare is is so challenging. But for us, we've always thought about who are all of those different stakeholders and how can we create value for them and what are their biggest pain points. And if you focus on that, you'll start to really understand um, your users and your market. Yeah. And and for the listeners, the NSF I-Corps program is funded by the federal government to facilitate more translation of academic discoveries, particularly in the hard sciences, recognizing that a lot of government grant funding goes into academia to back a lot of these early ideas. For the benefit of the taxpayer, it behooves the government to look for translational opportunities to get those ideas out into the world to help patients create jobs, all those economic development, collateral benefits that happen. But I think that program, I, my observations were it's been very effective nationally, and certainly in your case, to very augment much. the money that came with the SBIR and even the dollars that went in the 2500 it's negligible amount but the time that you spent working with you know potential customers and at the end of the day some of your investors were those future customers Absolutely. you were always shaping yourself into a company that was going to be solving a problem in the market and and I I noticed that that early on was a a common mistake that innovators uh made in in being kind of consumed by how cool the technology mm-hmm. that they were working on is and less concerned about what problem were they solving. So that's one thing I really noticed about the program in general, but Explorer being a, a company that really took advantage of that pathway. What were some of the things along the way as you began to build the team that stood in your way? You, you talked about getting traction in the market. You kind of knew where you were aiming, then you had to test it, and then you had to get people to begin to pay you or or partner with you. Can you talk a little bit about how were you able to orchestrate both building the team and at the same time delivering a product to partners that were willing to pay you? It it's really hard because, you know, the I think one of the most challenging parts of a startup is that you're operating in a resource constrained environment. And in healthcare, because the sales cycles are so long, you know, you really have to think through how much money do I need to get through each of these different phases. And so, you know, for us, we always thought about it kind of slice by slice and what do we need to do to get to the next stage. So it's fun and just to think about what's our vision and where we're going to be in five or 10 years. But the reality is you usually get enough money to operate for 12 to maybe 24 months. And you have to go out and fundraise six months before that money runs out. So you're always thinking about what do I need to do in each of these different pieces. So for us, it was always, you know, 
very focused on what are we going to do in that immediate period. And we used our, you know, SBIR phase one grant to do what we knew was needed for other hospitals to put our solution in, which was to actually capture data on what does an OR look like without Explorer and what does an OR look like with Explorer. And so we used that roughly quarter of a million dollars to actually do research at the University of Chicago. And from there, once we had that data, we were then able to start going to other hospitals and saying, can you put this in? But they didn't pay us early yeah. on. Mm-hmm. So they were not willing to pay us, but they were willing to start using the product, which helps us get you know, all of the user feedback that we wanted on what worked and what didn't, but also to start to capture more data about the usage of our product so that we weren't just looking at it, you know, in in a very specific, here's what it is at University of Chicago in this type of surgery, but we could really start to understand more broadly how this worked in the market. So it was step by step by step, and then you raise money, and then you go and start building a commercial team and going and talking to folks, and then you raise more money, and it kind of keeps going until you get to this mythical land of being profitable, which <laughs> right. I don't know about yet. <laughs> well, you're on your way. <laughs> well, buddy, that's interesting. It's, it's almost like you're kind of going from base camp to base camp. You're kind of, you know, yeah. climbing, but you know, you have a very defined path to get to that base camp and then you get there and then you kind of reload and start moving ahead up yep. toward, toward the summit, the promised land, like you said, profitability. The promised land of profitability. <laughs> yeah. But, but it's interesting the way you talked about that and, you know, along the way, each funding round, I would imagine you were able to then acquire more resources in the form of talent. And yeah. maybe the talent was more willing to come because you had more resources and it kind of yeah, feeds absolutely. on itself. And more and more people begin to believe in it beyond those initial people that kind of backed you in the beginning. Yeah. And, you know, the the first is always the hardest, right? Whether it's the first convincing the first full-time employee or convincing, you know, the first hospital to use your product or convincing the first customer to actually pay for your product. I think there's a lot of risk aversion in, in healthcare in particular, which I don't think is, is a bad thing, right? So if you're going to change the way that an operation is done, you should have data about and you should be really methodical and you should move slowly because that's a patient that's on the table. But it also just creates an inherently longer timelines for new products and services to come to market. And not a lot of people are willing to raise their hand and say, you know, I'm going to be the first. I'll give it a try. Yeah. Yeah. Even today, you know, one of the first questions we get asked and we're, I think, you know, we're still very much a startup, but we're a global company. We have dozens of customers. You know, the first question is, well, who else is using this, right? And then they go to our website and see, you know, the logos of Medtronic and Boston Scientific. And that then they can say, oh, okay, I'm not the first person to do this. It's interesting. Yeah, there's a lot, there's a risk aversion, particularly with large corporate partners that don't always want to be the ones that take that first risk. Yep. They, they often, I've found, are looking more at what the, what could be the bad outcome here, not about what the upside might be if they if they take that risk. And some of it is, you know, well-founded in the sense that yeah. large companies act and move in different ways for good reason as mm-hmm. well. But it just makes it that much more difficult to get that larger organization that needs the innovation, that frankly craves the innovation and requires it for their own pipeline. But at the same time, very difficult for them. A lot of inertia, you know, in, in the beginning. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about like what the primary product and platform is 
and how it's evolved to present day mm -hmm. and kind of what, how is it being used and, and how has that made you feel kind of looking back on what you thought Explorer Surgical was going to be and maybe what it has become? Yeah. So um, for anybody who's listening, so Explorer is a digital and remote case support platform. So we're a software tool that's used intraoperatively, you know, during a procedure, whether it's in the OR, in the cath lab, or in the EP lab. And there's really three core components to our software. The first is having a digital workflow where we map out best practices step-by-step step for each team member that's in the room, um, which does include the professional from industry who's typically there, so the medical device rep or clinical specialist. People are able to see and interact with content live during the procedure. The second pillar of our product is capturing data. So enabling those team members, as well as anybody that is you know, outside of the room, but using the platform to capture timestamps, detailed data around what's happening during a procedure. And the third is remote connectivity. So anybody you know, who wants to be in that room but can't physically be there is able in a HIPAA and GDPR compliant way to see everything that's in the room, but also be able to interact with the workflow and the data. So for us, those first two pillars have always been the foundation of what we've built, looking at inefficiencies in, you know, interoperative workflow in the OR. A lot of wasted cost and time and mistakes, right? Wasted cost, wasted time, but really it's just, it's a lot of unwanted variability. And so at the end of the day, you know, surgery is a team of people that are coming together to take care of a patient. And just like we see in our business day-to-day -day lives, if you're working with the same people day in, day out, doing the same things over and over, you get into a groove. And it's great. It's really smooth and everybody knows each other and you anticipate your next everybody's next move. But if you have somebody new that comes into the team or you have to move into a different environment, there are hiccups. And we still so we see that happen in surgery. And I'd say we see that happen roughly 50% of the time, just because of the realities of healthcare. But the impact here is much greater because there's a patient who ends up, you know, sitting open on the table for 10 minutes because somebody didn't have what was needed. So, you know, for us, that vision of bringing those best practices into the room so that the patient doesn't suffer because of who physically shows up in the room to support a case has always been the same. Mm -hmm how we've actually gone to market and how COVID has impacted our business is absolutely not what I thought it would be when I first started the company. Yeah, tell us more. What what does that, how, how has it changed due to that? Yeah, so what we saw with COVID was a tremendous reduction in the number of people that were being allowed into operating rooms mm -hmm. and cath labs. So the first time I showed up in an OR, you know, with Alex, I imagine there would be, you know, maybe three people there, right? You think about a surgeon, a nurse, and an anesthesiologist. And in reality, you know, there were like eight people there. I'm sitting there saying, who the heck are all of these people yeah. and what are you doing? So there are students, there are techs, there are people from industry. But that's where you might say we've got three different reps that are here in the room, right? We've got the balloon rep and we've got the Medtronic rep and we've got the extra rep here, you know, just in case that, you know, is going to be available if we need anything. And so with COVID and the importance of, you know, physical distancing and not having as many people in person together or traveling, right. 
hospitals started to say, we're not going to allow everybody in the room or mm-hmm. we want to reduce the number of people in the room. Wow. And that's where we started to get a lot of our users sure. of our platform actually calling us. Um, this is, I guess it would have been at the very beginning, like February, March of 2020, saying, hey, can I go in the room? Can I set up Explore? And then can I actually watch everything from the hallway? And that's when we realized we really needed to have the remote video as a component of delivering our software. And that's just really taken off in a way that we didn't expect. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, and you were able to adapt and and kind of, it sounds, respond to the market yet again in, in touch customer with the customer. <laughs> always. And adapting. No, that's that's really that's really interesting to see how it's uh, evolved and even accelerated through through COVID. And I would expect, you know, there were, were that as we go down that pathway, as we think about telemedicine, remote health, you know, uh, remote management, um, that don't you think we're kind of forever moving in that direction now Very that we kind of begin to change that fundamental Very much. practice, uh, much like, you know, even just remote work and remote Absolutely. learning, all those kinds of things have really yeah. new doors have been opened through this, uh, this unfortunate time frame, but quite, quite a, a seminal time for really interesting innovations like the one that Explorer is advancing and accelerating. Perhaps the only silver lining of just this terrible pandemic is the rapid adoption of digital technology and how it's been used. Mm-hmm. So I think in healthcare, healthcare I think has always been maybe the last one, one of the last industries to adopt new technology. Mm-hmm. And I think COVID has really said, well, now we can't do things the way that we did before. And so we have to look for new methods. But by bringing new technology in, you know, not just to the OR, but thinking about everything that's been done in the ICU and, and you know, other care settings, it's really, really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Today's episode was brought to you by World Business Chicago. Connect with World Business Chicago, the city's economic development agency, and discover more about the city's vibrant life science ecosystem. From Chicago's global universities and research institutions to its diverse pipeline of skilled talent and vibrant neighborhoods, as well as its cutting-edge lab and office space, Chicago has the fuel for your company's success. There's no better place to build a life science company than in Chicago. Well, you know, the, maybe just switching gears for a minute too, just thinking about your journey and your pathway, your passion for entrepreneurship and building what you've built mm-hmm. so far. And I want to talk a little bit about your experience as an investor too. I'm mm-hmm. really intrigued by the other things that you're involved in on both uh, women's health and also kind of this um, in the Midwest focused mm-hmm. seed fund that you're involved in as well. well. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. But along the pathway, as you were building Explorer, You've been building a family too. How has yeah. how have you balanced that? I mean, that's a challenging pathway to be the the life of an entrepreneur. Really, is kind of all consuming, but at the same time, being a parent, it can be all consuming as well. How have you balanced that? Oh, I I love it, and I recommend it to you know I, I recommend entrepreneurship as I, I think a great path um, for women who want to have children because you get to set your own schedule. So, I mean, even Today, as an example, you know, I dropped my son off at preschool, you know, before I came over here. If I were working at a big company, I might not get that flexibility to say, oh, I don't want to come into the office I mean, pre-COVID, right? Yep. Um, so you're able to set your own schedule. And I think what I really like is that when I travel, it's because 
I choose to travel and because I decide that getting on that plane is really important to my business. I don't go on a trip because somebody says, oh, it's important to have FaceTime and it's important to show up. I get to make those decisions. And that's really important to me. And so that helps me balance things. And I also think, I mean, you know, as a parent of seven, I think parents get it done, right? Yeah, parents I mean, don't waste time. I I have often said that you know I've it's been very synergistic for me. Um, I when it, when I'm not you know at in the workplace and trying to you know uh, negotiate and persuade you know whether it's customers or interact with venture capitalists or corporate partners, going home and negotiating with my children uh, <laughs> is a lot harder. So you know they set a very high standard uh, and it's constant and they're very persuasive too. I've learned a lot of sales techniques. Um, some oh, of it yeah. is just dogged persistence, <laughs> begging, <laughs> and, and it works. Uh, so yes, I've found, you know, similar, you know, joy in, in balancing both and even synergy. And maybe back to you on that. Have you found in some respects where you almost sharpen your skills or or find, you know, added benefit by having the family and supporting and even getting brainstorms, you know, at certain points in times when you maybe otherwise wouldn't think so as you're arguing with your child or or at a soccer match <laughs> with spacing out. Any thoughts on on that, whether it's actually additive? I, I think it's absolutely additive. I mean, you know, being a parent, I think, puts everything in, in perspective, right? So it helps you understand what are what are the real issues versus something that somebody thinks is an issue but is really a non-issue. And I think it also, you know, to the point I made before, makes you really, really efficient. Mm-hmm. So if you're a parent and you're sitting in the office, you're not screwing around at work because – you want to get your work done so that you can go home and be with your family. And so I think it actually makes people more efficient and more productive at meetings than they would otherwise. And yeah, I've definitely had some light bulb moments, you know, here and there at two or three in the morning. Um, and then my toddler also now can unlock my phone. So he's called board members before and <laughs> he's had his own conversations with them, which they said were very enlightening. So. Going over your head, huh? Yeah. yeah. That's pretty funny. Well, at the same time, do you find that entrepreneurship, uh, as much as it is that you're surrounded by people and you're building a team and all of those that that team is supporting you, do you find it to be a lonely path sometimes? And if so, where do you turn to to kind of keep building yourself up? You have to have your tribe um, of other entrepreneurs. And so, you know, for me, I think I have two different categories of this tribe. One is my booth tribe and having a whole other group of entrepreneurs who started their companies around the same time. And, you know, they're not in the same spaces at all. But, you know, Caitlin Smith, the founder of Simple Mills, is one of my best girlfriends. And I can always call her if I say, hey, I'm having an issue with my board or, you know, I'm trying to think through my leadership team, you know, help me think through these things because there are so many parallels. And then my other tribe is, you know, my healthcare tribe of people that are solving similar problems and in similar spaces. And I did this great accelerator program um, called MedTech Innovator in 2017. And that was fantastic. That's a great program. It it was great. Um, And the best thing that came out of it were the relationships with the other founder CEOs. Um, And, you know, they're the people that I can call where I say, okay, tell me what's going on in this part, in this surgical specialty, right? Or, you know, I'm struggling with this one customer and this provision on a contract. I know you work with them too. What did you do to get around it? So it, it, you always have to have, you know, the people that you can call. 
Absolutely. That are somewhat uh, also kind of dispassionate and disconnected from from the business. Like you said, you've got a team and they're really yeah. always in your corner and, and moving course. things forward. A board that's most often supportive, but not always necessarily, um, you're not able to open up and you need those outlets. So you found, I think, some really reliable sources to to do that. Talk a little bit about now some of your things that you're doing in addition to Explore Surgical. Dive a little bit deeper into the fun Midwest. Where did that get started? How did it come about? And what is it? Yeah, so the Fund Midwest is part of a parent organization called The Fund that has put together a series of micro funds that are focused in different geographies. And the whole goal of it is really, you know, for founders by founders. So they have four different founder GPs um, who are all writing roughly $50,000 checks into generally pre-seed companies in their geography. And, you know, as mentioned before, I, it's hard to fundraise, and it's really hard to raise your first round. And so what I found is, as I got you know further and further along with Explorer, is that more and more entrepreneurs in the Chicago ecosystem were reaching out to me, and especially healthcare entrepreneurs, and especially other women entrepreneurs. I get calls all the time and get asked for advice, and I would provide all the advice that I could. I always take those meetings because I think it's just incredibly important to give back, and I want to see Chicago really keep growing into a great startup ecosystem. But what I didn't have the capacity to do was to also write checks. So I hope to be able to do that at some point down the road, Mm -hmm. but it's not where I'm at today in terms of writing a lot of angel checks. This is basically a way for me to be able to keep supporting the ecosystem, but actually support the best entrepreneurs financially as well, um, and to be a part of you know that side of the ecosystem as well. Yeah, that's a big deal too, because people really do look to you. I mean, you're, you're a leading voice, um, you're a trailblazer here, I think, particularly in this geography. Maybe talk a little bit about that as a passion. You, you, when you, Your eyes lit up when you talk yeah. about the Chicago ecosystem in the region. Um, we share that passion, obviously, yeah. but talk a little bit about like being here in Chicago. Like, why does it fire you up, and what about it is causing you to want to lean in? I mean, Chicago is my home. Um, you know, I wasn't born here. My mom, my mom was born here and grew up here, but I've lived here now for 15 years, which I think gives me, you know, the chest bumping rights Absolutely. to be able to say I'm a Chicagoan now. And it's where my friends are. It's where my family is. It's where I'm going to raise my family. And I want to see Chicago be a great startup ecosystem. And one of the challenges, and you know, you see it in the data, is there isn't as much funding that's available. And so I think the more that can be done to create funding opportunities for entrepreneurs in Chicago, the more great companies that are going to get produced. Do you, think it's, do you think it's changing? Do you think the ecosystem is evolving and moving forward? I think it is. Um, you know, I'm I'm a very impatient person, and so I'd love to see it move faster. Um, in the same way that I'm impatient with my own business, and I, I think I'm never going to be satisfied with where we are. I, was, I always want to say, how do we get to the next step? But I do think we're moving in the right direction. And there have been a lot of these micro funds that have popped up, and I think it's great. And I think the more, the merrier. What about your focus also as an ancillary to that in uh, the portfolio's femtech fund? Um, yeah. Is that related in any way or is it, it sounds like it's two distinct things, but maybe you could talk a little bit about that and what's driving you in that direction as well. And what are you looking at? Uh, what, what are the kinds of things that you're seeing that are interesting um, yeah. in women's health? Yeah. So portfolio is another 
fantastic investment group with a similar but different mission. So Trish Costello, who was the former president of Kauffman Fellows, um, which is a fellowship program that I did when I was working as a VC, saw this huge gap in men and women writing angel checks. And what she saw was a group of guys who were wealthy could go out to dinner and one of them would say, oh, I saw this great startup. And the guys would all say, oh, well, I'll chip in 50K, I'll chip in 100K. And before you know it, they would leave that steak dinner and say, great, here's a half a million dollar check for this entrepreneur to start their business. But the same things weren't happening when a group of women were going out to dinner together. And even though women control, I think if not more than 50%, very close to 50% of wealth in the U.S., women aren't investing in venture capital and you know, early stage startup companies. And so Trish said, I want to change that and I want to create a series of funds and focus on bringing in women as LPs where they can come in with not a very large check, but, you know, $20,000, $25,000 check, but, and not just invest in a fund, but also become educated to you know, how does venture capital work? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So coming in, having monthly presentations, seeing GPs that have experience talk about deals, be part of due diligence, and really get educated on venture capital with the goal of getting more women to put money into this asset class. So in 2018, Trish decided to start the Femtech Fund. And at the time, nobody had ever done a fund dedicated exclusively to women's health. And she called me. Um, I was six or seven months pregnant with my first, and said, we're trying to put together this geography of women who are experienced healthcare investors to invest in women's health. And I said, that's great, but I don't know anything about women's health. And what she said is, that's the problem. Nobody thinks of themselves as being a women's health expert. And she knew I was pregnant and said, you know, you're getting care you know, in a great area in Chicago, you're going to deliver at Prentice, one of the top hospitals in the country. Yet, how many things can you think about that you'd like to improve about your pregnancy? I said, oh, I'd improve this and this and this and this. And she said, yes, exactly. But because nobody thinks of themselves as women's healthcare experts, this entire segment has been underfunded, underinvested in, under-resourced. And because there aren't enough GPs that are able to understand it, People don't invest in things to understand. She said, I want to change that. And so even though I was really, really busy, yeah. how could I say no? Yep. And so I joined that fund and it's, you know, it's a couple hours a week, um, but we're looking at all facets of women's health. And it's been one of the most fun things that I've done. We're oh, now amazing. investing fund two, okay. um, which is closed. <laughs> I'm sure we're going to do fund three soon. And I absolutely Love it. That's so catalytic, though, too, for really opening up new market opportunities. Um, like you said, that really th was always being viewed with lack of information by a male-dominated set of Very much. characters that were the, the really driving investments um, into the field of, of healthcare. Yeah. So it opens up a whole new horizon, I would think, around market opportunities that were yet uncharted and unidentified before, but yeah. clearly needed. Um, and, and really then being stimulated by the investments required. Again, it all kind of goes back to your early story too, just those early believers to get something going yeah. and the momentum that starts to build thereafter, more begin to believe, more money is attracted. But that early start 
it seems to me that that fund will be really catalytic to opening up and oh, setting yeah. the stage for many new female entrepreneurs. Yeah. And, you know, what's what's funny is when we started Fund One in 2018, I felt it, it took us, I think, almost two full years to invest it because there just weren't that many companies. And now with Funds Two in 2021, we are inundated with deal flow. And that's amazing because you're seeing so many more people saying, you know, I want to change the game. And it's a, a lot of it, to your point, is driven by women entrepreneurs who said, this was my experience and this part of my life cycle, right? Whether it's puberty, prenatal, postnatal, menopause, and saying, I want to create a better experience for other women. And these are huge markets that they're going after that have really just, it's, it's just total white space, which is so, so exciting. Absolutely. Yeah. We're seeing a lot of that, frankly, you know, at Portal Innovations, where we're seeing a lot more interest by either women CEOs that have raised capital or were supporting them in um, some of their early capital raises. Just a lot more activity around. Um, we've seen a few opportunities start to bubble up in women's health. I'd like to tell you about a few of those because yeah. <laughs> I think we, they yeah, I want to meet all of the entrepreneurs. They would really enjoy you know getting your insight in that area and some of the mentoring that you could provide in that regard. So it's a really exciting time to see uh, much more activity by female founders and mm -hmm. leaders. We've worked closely with Women in Bio. We're very excited about things that they're doing to try to spotlight and support um, women in the boardroom, for mm -hmm. example. So it's a very exciting time. I really hope that Portal can be a part of helping to stimulate a lot of that activity as well, being a place that is trying to catalyze, you know, just stirring the pot of all the different yeah. inputs that are required to grow great companies. Um, you've been very generous with your time. I really appreciate this conversation. Thank you so much for all you're doing for women's health, for the operating room, for your family, for the ecosystem. You're you're really moving mountains, and it's it's incredible to watch your progress. Um, I'm not surprised by it, but it's always amazing and inspiring to to watch your growth. Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guests today, and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye. Goodbye.